Well, hi, welcome to the teaching portion of our online service. I'm so excited to get into Ecclesiastes chapter four with you. Uh, the book I think is probably one of the most relatable books in the whole Bible for us right now, at least it is for me. So I'm super excited. Um, and to set up the teaching today, I wanna kind of give us a framework uh, this way. So because I'm a good, loving, responsible, doting father, uh, I reached this milestone moment with my kids a few weeks back where I decided it was time to sit them down and with them to watch Jurassic Park, that 1994 uh, epic by Steven Spielberg where dinosaurs come to life and terrorize everybody. It's great. True fatherhood moment. And so as we were watching, there was this scene where uh, everyone piled into like these Land Rovers uh, along this kind of track and they went on a guided tour of the park. And there's this digital tour guide, if you remember this, and the voice is saying like, if you look on the right, you will see this kind of dinosaur. If you look on the left, you will see this kind of dinosaur. And, and the tour guide was kind of explaining, this is how this kind of dinosaur dismembers and uh, decapitates and terrorizes its prey. And all the while, uh, you're, you're realizing this is like a precursor for what these poor tourists are going to be experiencing when the power on the park shuts off and the dinosaurs break out of their confines and hunt them down one by one. Now, true fatherhood moment. Again, if you're a parent now, you have your assignment this week. Anyway, for the rest of us, this idea, this framework of a tour guide is going to be really helpful as we open up Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So the narrator of Ecclesiastes calls himself teacher in Hebrew, Koheleth. And he's, he's bringing people on a tour of real life. Or as Derek Kidner, one Hebrew scholar writes, he's giving a survey of the earthly scene. And in chapter four, he's showing us the realities that we will experience on the road toward justice. Now, Justice is a, is a hot political topic uh, in our day and age. It's, it's a buzzword in our culture and for good reason. Uh, what justice is, according to one uh, Bible dictionary, is rendering to everyone that which is his due. Now, in the biblical worldview, every human has been made in God's image and is due to be treated as an image bearer of God. Question, is that the way the world is working right now? It's not. You know, we're not doing very well at that. And so a major theme throughout the whole biblical story is how God is restoring true justice through the sacrifice and the resurre resurrection and, and the coming reign of Jesus when he comes back to purge oppression and violence from the earth forever. But we're not there yet. And so the teacher is showing us, here's what you can expect as you long for justice and work toward justice in the world. Now, if you're a Christian, you are on a path toward justice. You've been invited to tell a new story, not, by, uh, not through revolution and violence, but by loving God and others, being part of a, a justice movement that we call the church it's justice road. That's what we're on. We're on justice road. And it leads us to the foot of the throne of Messiah Jesus. So while we're on this road, this road, the tour guide, the teacher is telling us 
what we can expect. And there are four realities that, that we're going to observe with him as we go through Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Number one is oppression. Number two, envy. Number three, self-sufficiency. And number four, politics. Oppression, envy, self-sufficiency, politics. And by the way, we are introducing a simple outline this week that you can find in your online bulletin at doorcreek.info if you are a note taker. So the first reality, the reality that oppression is everywhere. Let's look in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. The teacher says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. So he's saying here uh, that there are two ingredients necessary for oppression to exist. Number one, you need power. And number two, you need sinful human nature. Power plus sinful human nature equals oppression. Now, what's power? Let's just talk about power for a second. Power is a gift. It's kind of a bad word in our culture a little bit, but power is a gift. It was given by God to his creatures to, to like tap into the raw potential of all of creation and to bring about more goodness and yes, more justice. It hasn't totally worked out that way. And you may be thinking right now, well, I don't really have any power. I can barely get my cat to use the litter box. I have no power, but that's a misunderstanding of what biblical power is because biblical power comes from the assets that God has given you. And we all have been given some level of assets. It may be some property, right? Uh, when you have things, you have the, like that gives you advantage. So in, in the zombie apocalypse movie, um, you know, there, you've got the, the guy who has multiple PhDs in philosophy and then you've got the farmer uh, who has crops and a cellar full of guns and ammo. Who are people flocking to? Well, they're going to the farmer because he has property. Strength can be an asset that leads to power. Skills and knowledge can lead to power. So my mechanic who knows what the sound is in my van that's clunking, um, he has power over me because I have no idea what it is. And he, he has the power to either deal honest with, honestly with me or, or to overcharge me. Um, everyone's been given some amount of money, uh, which can lead to power. Uh, some of us have a position or title of manager or founder or, you know, uh, doctor, uh, pastor, parent, all of those kinds of things. There's spiritual power. And then there's just kind of being born into whatever the majority group is it can be a form of power. And it's, it's not malicious or hateful of people who aren't in the majority, but when you your group gets to define what's normal. That's an advantage over everyone else. Not something to feel guilty about, but something to be aware of. And so there are all these things and there's friends and connections and all these intangible things. You have some form of power. Maybe not as much as someone else, but everyone has some form of power. And it's a gift that God has uh, expects us to use to create more justice and to glorify him. Unfortunately, you and I have this inclination that we call sin uh, toward self-preservation, pride, self-centeredness. And wherever there are sinful people who have power, there will be oppression. That's what the teacher is telling us. And this is why oppression is everywhere. 
And we've all participated in some form of oppression, sometimes without even knowing it. Now, oppression has many faces as well. There's extortion and exploitation. There's slavery, bullying, abuse, racism, uh, really explosive topic in our day and age, abuse, neglect, all of these things. And it happens everywhere all the time in chat rooms and boardrooms and bedrooms and classrooms and courtrooms. The teacher's telling us that oppressors have power, but the oppressed have something else. What do they have? Look with me in verse uh, verse one. They have tears. The oppressors have power, the oppressed have tears, and they have no comforter. Now, it's really interesting. I want to point this out. The teacher didn't say that the oppressed have no justice. And that would have made more sense, wouldn't it? Because justice, the lack of justice, is the problem, right? But he didn't say they didn't have justice. He said they have no comforter. And isn't it crazy how this 2,500-year-old poem uh, could, could like realistically be found in a 21st century blog or magazine? It's like super relatable. And, and so what, what the teacher is saying is the next best thing to justice for the oppressed is comfort. The next best thing to true and final justice is comfort. And comfort in the Hebrew means pity or empathy. It's the friend who comes alongside you in your grief. It's someone who says, I can't fix you. I can't fix the oppression, but I can be with you. And then he goes in verse 2 into a riddle about life and death and being childlike. He said, and I've declared that the dead who have already died are happier than the living who are still alive. How honest is the Bible? Wow. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not yet seen the evil that's done under the sun. Now, let's just stop for a second. Like, how real is this book? I told you it was really relatable. How honest is this? I mean, is the teacher advocating for suicide and depression and euthanasia? No, but I think he's saying, expect this on the road. Expect this on Justice Road. I get it. God gets it. This is a a biblical author saying, you who struggle with depression, you who are fighting and pressing down suicidal thoughts, I see you. You're real. You're loved. You're heard. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I see your tears. And maybe if you are being oppressed right now by some form of oppression, and you're looking for, longing for justice, maybe what you need to do is be on the lookout for the simple comfort of a friend. And then he said, better than both, the one who is living under oppression and the one who has been released from oppression by death, better than both of those is someone who just hasn't seen the evil done under the sun, the innocence of a child. And if you're a parent or maybe a grandparent or a teacher, you might have had that moment after George Floyd's murder where you had to sit your kids down and try to explain what was happening to them. Man, that's a hard conversation. I don't think we were ever made to live in the reality of oppression that we live in. It was never part of God's vision. And we really feel that when we have to explain it to a child. So as you travel 
Justice Road, be a comforter. Be a comforter. The teacher's telling us the next best thing to justice sometimes is just comfort. So don't let the oppressed cry alone. And Paul, who is writing to a church hundreds of years later uh, in Rome, and they were bickering and fighting, two very different ethnic and class communities clashing over the leadership of church, said, guys, mourn with those who mourn. That's Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. And Christians, we often make the mistake when we, we are alongside someone who's depressed or suicidal or just really sad for a long time, we often make the mistake of being too quick to correct their sadness and their depression instead of just being with them. So you might not be able to fix them. You might not be able to fix the injustice, but you can be with them. You can love them, pray with them cry with them and walk alongside them on justice road. So that's the first reality that oppression is everywhere. So let's be comforters. The second reality is that envy destroys. Look with me in verse four. And I saw all the toil and all achievements spring up from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then he goes into this little poem Uh, This little riddle, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So envy in Hebrew is kina. It's this kind of greedy, prideful longing for something that belongs to someone else. Or, you know, if you just Google envy, you know, uh, which I did, there's this great quote floating around. It says, envy is the art of counting other people's blessings. It starts with comparison and often leads to depression or rage. So what does envy have to do with justice? Well, when you're on Justice Road, you're going to encounter lots of people with more power than you, more assets than you. And then he gives this riddle where fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So picture a folding of hands. This is a picture of someone who is discouraged and they're giving up. This is the oppressed person who says, nothing's ever going to change. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to sit here and let the oppression wash over me, giving up. The other picture is two handfuls with toil. What does that look like? That's like this white knuckled grip. And that's when someone who's oppressed blows up. They're grasping for power. They're shouting down their enemies. They're fighting fire with fire. And most people who are oppressed either give up or they blow up. But the teacher is saying there's another option. And the way he describes it is one handful with tranquility. You see that? And tranquility in the Hebrew is nahat, and it literally means the resting of the spirit. And this can only happen if you're a Christian because Jesus has done the hardest work for us. And it's our responsibility not to stand up for our own rights, to, to fight and, and, you know, to fight tooth and nail and fight fire with fire. Our job is just to accept the work that he's done. Yes, work for justice, but work from, for justice from a place of peace. So we need to walk justice road with tranquility. We can have hope because Jesus has promised to make all things right. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. We can even love our enemies. That's madness. We can love our enemies because we were loved 
by Jesus when we were enemies. And we can live justly because we've been justified. Look, the God of justice has already walked the road of justice. He's already walked and for him it led straight to the cross. And because of that, we can walk the road with tranquility. So we've talked about how oppression is everywhere and the next best thing to justice is comfort so we can be comforters. We've talked about how envy destroys, but we can walk justice road with tranquility. Now the third reality is that self-sufficiency isolates. Look with me in verse seven. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So look, as we walk Justice Road, we're going to encounter people, many people who are just obsessed with the politics and the debates and the wrongs that have been done and, and the activism and the media-induced rage of the people on the other side of the political or ideological aisle. And there is a place for anger. There is a place for that. But when you become possessed by that anger, what happens is you become a person who is in danger of missing out what's right in front of them. Simple moments with real people. So... Uh, uh, probably about a month or so after George Floyd's murder, I was really just feeling heavy, you know, and I, I took my kids to this beautiful little park that we have in DeForest, it's Fireman's Park, and it was a beautiful day, and just kind of took a breath, and my kids were running around and playing, just grateful to be able to touch, a, you know, playground equipment again, and there were other kids there, you know, they were socially distanced, and I realized that none of the kids were the same. There were different heights, different weights, different skin colors. And there's this beautiful picture, you know, of, of this, this peace and, uh, among diversity. And then to top it all off, one of our amazing uh, DeForest uh, police officers parked her squad car and got out with a red cooler. And she brought it to the playground and handed out freeze pops to all the kids. Now, I wanted one, but I, I didn't get one. But that's not the point. The point is that there was this beautiful moment, a simple moment with real people where I could stop and take a breath. And guys, we have to be on the lookout for those things as we walk Justice Road. And he goes on about simple moments with real people. Look in verse 9, this very famous little uh, stanza. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, the other can help him up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? More on that in a second. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So this is... Famously quoted very often in weddings and for good reason. But it's not just about marriages per se. It's, it's actually about the benefits that come from any kind of relationship, any kind of friendship. And you don't have to be married for this to be very real and very powerful in your life. So the teacher lists four kind of benefits of friendship. 
that uh, there's better return for their labor, uh, that they can help one another when they're down. In verse 12, he talks about how they can protect each other and stand up for each other. But the one I have a little story about is that they share body heat. So, you know, this was written in ancient Israel and the climate in Israel generally is pretty nice. It's pretty kind of moderate. Summers are, you know, can get warm in the 70s and 80s and the winters can get a little cool in the 40s and even the 30s. So what, what the teacher is writing here, uh, he was writing in the context of no mechanical heat systems in, in his home. And so, yeah, the idea of two people cuddling up, being close together to stay warm at night was very, very real for him. Now, if you're a dude... Uh, you can probably relate to this because as American, like hetero males, I don't know about you, but it's been ingrained in me to just never, ever snuggle with another dude, ever, for any reason. Well, I I broke that rule uh, and I want to tell you that little story. So uh, when I was a freshman in college, Bible college, years ago, uh, it was the dead of winter, January, and my Roommate and I were just bored and we're like, let's do something crazy, you know, just because we can. Let's go camping. So we scrapped together some camping gear, not very nice camping gear, but, you know, kind of whatever, thrift store level camping gear. And we went uh, to St. Croix State Park, which is about an hour away, and we pitched the tent and we, you know, kind of set up the campground. But it was so cold that we had to leave the truck running and we had to take turns doing the setup. So one person could be doing the setup while the other person was like, putting their hands on the, the warm air and the vents. Now, it was my turn to be in the cab of, the, of his truck while he was setting up the tent. And the headlights were on, I could see him, and it was snowing, it was dark out, and it was brutally cold. And he's like pumping up the air mattress, and it was taking forever. And finally, it filled up, and he like exuberantly fell on the air mattress, and it was so cold that it cracked in half, literally cracked into two pieces. So we had to spend the night on a cracked in half air mattress in the dead of winter uh, in January. The next morning, a park ranger came by and said, you two are idiots. It was 18 below last night. And we're like, oh, that's, that's pretty cold. It was very cold. I'll tell you, that night I have never snuggled harder with another dude than I did before or since. Now, all, all that to say that uh, when you are lying next to someone, your body heat isn't taking, taken from you. It actually is like added to and multiplied by the person's body heat. You actually keep the body heat that you give. And on Justice Road, there are going to be times where you just need to survive a cold night with a friend. So look for simple moments with real people. And in this season of online church and digital, you know, online everything, Uh, We're all craving just being around other people. And maybe you're tired of it. I am. But let's, guys, let's look for these opportunities. Simple moments with real people. The the people that seem to be doing okay right now are the ones who are still serving. They're still seeing other believers in their homes or their, their backyards. They're still calling people up. They're still engaging. So that's the third reality. Self sufficiency isolates, but we can look for simple moments with real people. Here's the fourth reality that politicians, yeah, I'm going to get political here. Politicians become irrelevant. Politicians become irrelevant. Look here in verse 13. Better a poor wise youth 
than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. So this is a little political vignette. And I'll explain it in a second. Let's read it. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all who lived and walked under the sun following the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So what's happening in this little political vignette, this little almost like Aesop's fable. So you've got this young rising star, right? He's young, he's passionate, he's inspiring, he's sharp, scrappy, ambitious. He he always knows what to say and he can really gather a crowd, okay? And then you've got this other politician, this old foolish king. He's rich, he's comfortable, he's proud. He's climbed his mountain and he's paid his dues and now he's settled on the top of the mountain and he's no longer open to new perspectives. So what happens in the vignette? Well, the young, ambitious, scrappy politician strives for greatness, enchants the masses, overthrows the king and then immediately becomes irrelevant. This is written 2,500 years ago and it's the exact picture of our political situation today. And I'm not trying to pick on politics. Politics are super important. But like power, politics uh, combined with sinful nature goes wrong all the time. And here's all that this means. Is that popularity is short-lived. Political power is always unstable. And crowds are always fickle. And here's the irony, you guys. When we think that we have wisdom, well, when we think we are wise, we actually don't have that much to offer anymore. Somehow, wise people don't know that they're wise. So we have, to, we have to season our politics with humility. We have to, you know, if you're older, uh, you just hold your position with humility. Your, your ideological position or maybe your title. So parents, managers, teachers, doctors, hold your position with humility. Maybe a good prayer for you would be, Lord, Don't let me become that decrepit, crotchety, bitter person who thinks they know everything. (laughs) Younger people, pursue your ambition. Like, do that. That's good. Pursue justice. Pursue pursue your ambition, but do it with humility. So Gen Z, millennials, don't let your passion, your ambition, and all of that blind you to the wisdom of those who have gone before you. And a good prayer, maybe for you, Um, And I'm kind of in the middle of these generations, so I'm praying both of these. A good prayer for us would be, Lord, deliver me from being that harsh young disruptor who thinks that they know everything. So we've talked about how oppression is everywhere and, and we need to be comforters. We've talked about how envy destroys and so we need to walk justice road with humility. We've talked about Uh, how self-sufficiency isolates and and we need to look for simple moments with real people. And we've talked about how uh, politicians become irrelevant. So we need to season our politics with humility. Now, what what do we do with this? And here's the reality, you guys. The same Holy Spirit who inspired these words is at work in us right now. Like that's what we really believe So as I've been wrestling with the Holy Spirit's words through the teacher 
2,500 years ago and wrestling through what, what are the questions I need to be asking and praying. I think I've been led to two questions and I just want to share them with you before we end our time together. The first question is, am I listening? Am I listening? Do I, am I seeing the tears of the oppressed? Am I listening to the pain of people in minority groups? So I'm, I'm white, okay? I was born into a majority. It doesn't mean I hate black people. It doesn't mean I need to feel guilty about being white, but it does mean that I need to be aware that be, the very nature of my whiteness means that I have the luxury of, not, of maybe not hearing the pain of my sisters and brothers of color. And that's kind of how I've been challenged. And I want to invite you into that challenge, maybe if you're white. Or if you're a manager or a parent or leader, you have people in your umbrella of care. Are you coming alongside people who are in tears right now? So am I listening? The second question is, where's my trust? Where's my trust? You know, I've heard a lot about how this election cycle is the most explosive election cycle in American history. And I don't know about that. I don't know. I think every election cycle is probably the most explosive election cycle in American history. I mean, you, you remember 2008? I do. Some of you remember uh, in 1963 when JFK, John F. Kennedy, was shot in the head at a rally in Dallas. Or how five years later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in his motel in Memphis in April. Guys, politics, just like power, it's a gift, but it gets abused. It gets turned into oppression. And I'm just afraid that there are masses of Christians right now who really believe that politics is going to be the primary way to create change. It is a way to create change, but that they believe it's the only way or the best way. And guys, if that's you, you're wrong. I'm saying that out of love. Politics will never be what we hope it will be as long as there's sin in us and in the world. So as we are dealing with all this clickbaity like campaign ads and these juicy memes that you know mock the other guy or uh, the noise from these celebrity pundits who are on the left and the right who are literally taking money for us to... Uh, to give us what we call news. We have to remember that in the midst of all of that, that the real battle isn't against a politician or even an ideology. It's against injustice and the demonic forces behind it. And we have to ha be filled with the spirit of God. I want to close with this as a prayer. This is from Revelation 21, verse 5. Go ahead and pray with me. Jesus, what you said he who was seated on the throne, and that's you, you said that you would make all things new. So Jesus, we trust that that is true. We trust that that is true in our own hearts right now. We trust that you will transform us as we submit ourselves to you. We trust that that is going to be true the world over. First, as you work through us, your followers, to create justice on earth. But then again, finally and permanently when Jesus you come back to reign and purge evil from the earth so Jesus we say come quickly come quickly work through us we love you we thank you for this time and this word amen